wealthy people are very on top of how much their money, what their money's doing for them and what kind of returns they're getting. But they're also planning ahead to mitigate some of their taxes because taxes, inflation, those are the largest eroders of wealth that are out there. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on Stephanie Walter. Stephanie is the CEO of Airbane Wealth, a capital raiser, syndicator, and real estate investor. She recently retired after selling her insurance agency for over 16 years by following the principles she teaches other professionals how to use. Today, we have her on the show, though, to help us unlearn what most of us have been wired to think about money and re-educate us about how we can obtain wealth. So I'll just stop there and say, Stephanie, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? My dad actually owned a Dairy Queen for many years. And so, I mean, it switches all the time. But right now, I like just like vanilla ice cream with Oreo cookies, the blizzard. I was going to ask about about toppings, but I'm assuming if you owned a Dairy Queen, you're very familiar with the blizzards. Oh, yeah. Yes. (laughs) Can you? So what's the secret then? How do they get how do they turn them upside down and nothing comes out? I think, well, really, it's just the thickness of the ice cream. And so once the toppings get mixed in, nothing, nothing should fall out. Otherwise, there's something pretty wrong with the consistency of the ice cream. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time since I've had a blizzard and this just reminded me how delicious they are. So I'm going to have yeah. to go have one now. <laughs> well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Um, I am a capital raiser. I raise money for syndicated real estate deals, which are just, you know, large apartments, multifamily deals where I raise money from investors to participate in them. Awesome. Well, where did your real estate journey begin? As you mentioned, I I did own an insurance agency, but around the same time I quit my W-2 and did that, I'd always like in the back of my mind, I always loved real estate. You know, I, I didn't have a lot of education, so I just kind of bought things, you know, based on my thoughts on, you know, Denver growing and what, what ways it would grow and what areas would flourish. And so, yeah, all along the time I owned my agency, I would buy a property every few years. And uh, one of my friends knew I was, I was interested in real estate. And she told me about a boot camp that, that was happening in the Denver area, talking about uh, buying apartments. And I was like, well, that's, that sounds interesting. So I went into that and that's when I learned the concept of syndication, which really is just a group of people buying um, real estate that's bigger than anyone could do on their own. And I was, I was just floored sold at that time and uh, just, you know, head first joined uh, the group. It was called Ari Mentor for networking, but for largely education. You're, you're really getting a master's in commercial real estate. And um, from there, I did my first syndication in 2018 and realized that I didn't want to ever do that by myself again. And so I teamed up with my partner and I, uh, I realize I love raising money and he loves finding the deal. And so we've worked well together. We're on our eighth acquisition right now. 
Awesome. Well, um, the, the single family route. So where did you start in that? Were you a buy and hold? Did you, did you fix and flip? Like, how did you get interested mm-hmm. in that? I, well, this is a good thing about being an insurance agent is you could see what other people were doing. And I remember um, watching one of my dad's friends do a flip. And I realized that there's just no way I would ever want to do it. Everything that could have gone wrong for that poor man went wrong. And I was like this, no, no, this isn't for me. So I went the way of like, I was single at the time. So I was like, I'll buy property, live in it for a few years and then rent it out and then go into the next one. So that's, that was sort of my strategy going forward. Yeah. I like to joke that if you ever saw me swing a hammer, you'd never know if I was left-handed or right-handed. Like I am the worst handy person ever. So don't expect me to get in there and start fixing things. But (laughs) was that the plan then all along was to live in it for two years and then ultimately just rent it out and move on to the next one and the next one. And I was on a pretty good, pretty good run there. And then I met my husband and we got off track there and he bought a house and um, I sort of yeah, uh, went a little bit off track and just was like, well, the properties I bought had from Denver, I started buying in 2005. I bought a lot actually during the the drop off in uh, 07, 08, 09. And so then I just sort of, when I got married, we just kind of sat on things and we were like, you know, I think what we'll do is just kind of sit on these properties because they've appreciated so much and just wait the 30 years. And then when they're paid off, then we'll have this great cash flow and we can retire. Um, And that was the plan. Yeah. And it's not a bad plan, by the way. Like I, I scaled my single family portfolio to 10 and it was all under that idea of like, Hey, I'm going to continue doing my W2 and work as hard as I can. And in 20 years, they will be within spitting distance of being able to pay those off. I could pay those off and boom, there's my retirement portfolio. But then Mm -hmm. ultimately I just wanted to scale faster. Is there, is there a reason why you kind of moved out of the single family space to the multifamily space? Uh, well, I was, one of those people that became pretty emotionally attached to my purchases, like they say not to. So I held on to mine, even when I started syndicating. And then it, you know, I, I worked with a lot of, you know, regular people, but I do work with a lot of wealthy investors. And I was just curious watching them, how they invested their money and where their priorities were. And it took a while, you know, because they don't just come right out and say, this is the way I feel about money and, and all this stuff. So it took some time for me to be like, they're, they're doing it differently than I am. And then it really made me kind of look at my properties and assess like, what kind of cash flow am I getting from these? Or am I holding on, on to these for like this appreciation, if it keeps appreciating and and just kind of just really started to change my mindset and realized that taking that money that was already in those those buildings and putting it to work for me uh, to give me cash flow right now, not cash flow 30 years in the future was very appealing to me. And so uh, as each 
I participated in each syndication with my partner, I would sell a property and I would take some of the money in and invest as a limited investor. And I figured that's the best way to learn how to be a limited investor is to, or limited partner is to invest in your own projects. So I started doing that. And once that cash flow started coming in, it I got real tired real quick of being a landlord and just was like, I like this a lot better. <laughs> do you do you remember how much you were cash flowing on the single family units? Oh uh, yeah, a couple hundred, you know, depending on the property. Now I was I was sitting on and I would always do this like on an annual basis is to go and look up what my net worth is, you know, and be sure, you know, adjust all the numbers and and all that stuff. And I was like, ooh, wow, I'm I'm big time. But like cash flow was, you know, that was nothing. And um, and so yeah, I changed my focus to cash flow. And then by doing that, actually became to was able to retire, you know, 20 years earlier than I would have had I kept on my other path. Yeah, I um that's one of my primary rules of anything I invest in is it has to cash flow because it's great that you can buy Dogecoin and it goes from zero cents to 20 cents and you're now a paper billionaire or whatever. Yep. But if, if that goes right back down the next day, you can't spend any of that, right? Yep. Or if you do want to spend it, you have to liquidate it and then pay taxes on it to then pay it. So I, the number one thing I always look for is cash flow because at least cash flow can pay the bills where net profit or, or I'm sorry, paper profits, you can't pay bills with. Correct. Yeah. And that's when you, when things, you know, after the, the recession there, there were some weird things happening, like, well, all the lines of credit, because I would take lines of credit and, and to be able to buy other things. And then they cut those off on the rentals and then they, you know, brought them back in and it just seemed very, you know, unstable, you know, a source of, you know, extra, in, extra, you know, way to access that money, which is really inaccessible, you know, unless you're going to sell it. Yeah. We, we live right now in a time very full of high liquidity and money is flowing around everywhere, everywhere. I mean, I'm getting offers for credit lines on banks. I've never even heard of like, Hey, would you like to open a credit line? Um, and people tend to forget that that is not the case during a recession, right? In 2008 yeah. and 2009, all the credit lines were called. And if you had a callable line of credit with a bank and it had a million dollars of debt on it and they called it 30 days from now, you were expected to pay all of that. It's yeah. not like a fixed rate amortization table of debt. It is a line of credit that they can pull at any time. And, and I don't yeah. know, I, I, I preach that to people all the time is that they, they don't realize how easy money is right now and that you have to have ways that you can stack cash for times of downtime. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. I've always kind of wanted to ask this question to an insurance agent and I'm sorry to bring you back to your, your yeah. glory days there, but <laughs> any tips or tricks that you would give somebody out there that is looking at buying a single family home and knows they need to get insurance on it? What should they be looking for? What, what are the things that are negotiable on whether they have in a policy and what are the things that are absolute, like you don't really need that. It's just, a, it's a nice to have, but you don't need. Is it like a rental or is it like their single family home? Yeah. Like a that rental. Yeah. Those can be, it's, it's tricky. Those, those policies can be tricky, but I mean, the biggest thing for me anyways, and I think for most people is to be sure you can rebuild the house. Because uh, I had someone on a, a show ask me, well, what if it costs more than what I have it insured for? And I said, well, 
that's what you have it insured for and the insurance company isn't going to pay any more for it. Um, so it's real important to be, you know, either depending on your agent or really getting to know your policies yourself and being sure that with these huge, you know, costs of the cost of construction right now, that that is reflected in, in your policy, because that's the biggest thing. Um, the second one, which is not like it, there, it's an optional coverage. And I'm really surprised when I see people without it. And there are a lot of people that I don't think they just realize the gravity of it, but let's just say it's the loss of, of rents. And so that's really huge. And how long will, will the company pay the lost rents? Because there's, you know, so if you're, the house catches on fire because of something, you know, your tenant did, well, they can't live there anymore. And I can tell you with the way that construction's going now, it'll probably be more than a year before they can get back in there. So they don't have to continue paying you rent. So how are you going to pay your mortgage? You know, uh, so that's a, that's a huge one that you want to be sure your lost rents are in there. And it's, you know, there's an amount of money that that will work out to a year or even two years um, to cover you if that construction takes that long to do. That's called a loss of use provision, if I'm not mistaken. Is that yep. right? Loss okay. of use. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. So there's two things I want to pull out from your statement for, for everybody listening. One is the loss of use, right? So if something goes wrong, let's just call it a flood damage or a, a fire in the house where it doesn't completely tear it down. It just the renter can't be in there, that the resident can't be in there, then there's a loss of use provision where the insurance company, you would file a claim and the insurance company would actually pay you the rent that you're missing because you don't have a resident in there. And the second thing is the cost of build. So for those out there that got insurance policies five, six years ago, thinking that, hey, I bought this house for $100,000 and I've got a policy for $150,000, cost of labor, cost of materials, time to get people on the site has gone up tremendously now. So that house might cost like $250,000 to build. And all of a sudden now you only have 150,000 and it costs 250 to build. So you can't, you can build a half a house, a three quarters of a house. So it is a good time towards the end of year to just sit down and review those. It might be mind numbing stuff, but it will save you in the long run there. Yes. Um, Especially when you have like a tenant living in there, because you just really don't know, you know. Yep. Yep. Um, one of the things I, I'm dying to ask as well is this idea of a low coverage, low, uh, high deductible, but having an umbrella policy over it. So before you answer that question, I'll go ahead and throw out a legal disclaimer. We're not talking about what you should do with your property here. This is a asset protection strategy that some people employ. They basically don't get as much coverage on it. And then they throw an umbrella policy on top of it because an umbrella policy is super cheap. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think what you're describing is like, um, there are people that, you know, have, they're comfortable um, being responsible for the insurance. You know, if something happens, they're liquid enough that they, they don't really want to carry the insurance that would, they would need to rebuild. So they get like the basic, most basic policy that you can get. Some of them will just cover fire and that's it. Uh, or run a really high deductible on their current policy. And they're just kind of, you know, self-insuring at that point. But the umbrella comes into uh, really what most of us should be concerned with, which I 
have always said to people is the umbrella is the most important um, policy you have because that protects you from being sued. So that's really the liability coverage. So the liability coverage you is, you know, for most people, they get a million dollars. I, my sister is now my insurance agent and I, I told her to get me as much at, um, as she can get me for liability because if you get sued, it's really, really very cheap to have umbrella. So really my advice would be to get the most coverage you can get that you want to be protected from if someone sued you. So your net worth or, you know, it's really up to you to come up with that number and, and have that insurance because that is a pretty cheap, uh, you know, way to protect you and, and your assets. Yeah. So I, I'm going to try to throw my understanding of it and please tell me, correct me if I'm wrong here, because I'm a little over my ski tips when I talk insurance, but <laughs> essentially there's a liability coverage of let's call it a hundred thousand dollars. So if somebody gets hurt on your property, you're covered up to a hundred thousand dollars, but anything over a hundred thousand dollars is on you. So what people will do is throw an umbrella of let's call it a million dollars on top of that. And that gives you an extra million on top of the hundred. So if they fall and they're paralyzed or, or something tragic happens, then they would get the first hundred thousand and then they would take you to the court for the, for anything over and the umbrella policy would kick in and cover up to a million from there. Correct. That yeah. sounds perfect to me. Yeah. And umbrella, <laughs> umbrella insurance is super, super cheap. I mean, mm -hmm. dirt cheap. So it's, it's worth the, the money I would think. Correct. Yes, absolutely. Um, all right. I'll, I'll pull you back out of your glory days and talk about <laughs> what you're doing today. Um, you said your first syndication, this is one thing I found interesting in my research of you is that you did it yourself. And so for those of you that don't know, a syndication is where you go and, and pool resources together. And the point of a syndication is that you can't do everything yourself. It's really hard to do everything yourself. Um, what did you learn from going through that process that then allowed you to go grow into a, a more a team approach to your syndication? Yeah, um, I think just for me running my business for so many years and just being very self-sufficient, um, just my personality is that is I just felt like I can do this myself. And I thought, you know, I just was really, really committed to getting that first deal. Like if you ask my husband, he'll be like, she was, you know, she was nuts. She was like, it was, it was actually personally a very difficult time because I was relentless on this property. And I'll, it's actually on the market right now. We're, we're contemplating selling it. We've doubled the money in, in three years, but I had to go to 30 different banks to find the financing for Whoa. it. You know, there was just so much stuff that you don't really know at the end of the day. And thankfully, knock on wood, it's it's done it's done very well. Um, but what I realized was this is impossible. And luck, I, I my journey has a lot of luck in it for sure. Um, and I met my partner um, because I had gotten involved in another deal in Florida and someone within our group of people was like, you should call Vino, he can help you. And we met and we decided to, through due diligence, not to pursue this property. And he was like, well, what do you think about raising money? And I was like, well, you know, I, I, I like it. And then we, you know, kind of tried it out for, you know, first few deals and it worked, we've, fit well together. And that's, yeah. And now I do see 
this is a it's an absolute team sport and anyone that does is successful in this has their niche so whether that niche can be anything and that's what's so beautiful about this type of um deal because there's people that are fantastic operating operators you know once it all uh closes that's a skill in itself to be able to be sure that this is this business is running well and everybody's getting paid the way they need to get paid and expenses and and income are running where they need to go um, and then there's people that like me that just like to raise the money and talk to the investors and um, you know they're very very different skill sets so yes I, I am a team this is a team sport for sure if you're interested in getting involved I'd say go to like a a convention of some kind with multifamily and then you meet people and hopefully interact with the successful people. <laughs> yeah. I like falling out of my chair when you said you went to 30 banks because the last refinance I did, I had to produce a gigabyte worth of data. I mean, tax wow. forms, income forms, property records, deeds, insurance, like it was so much stuff that I can't imagine having to go to 30 different banks. And, and that was before they could approve me or deny me, right? So like, I can't yeah. imagine going to 30 different banks just to go through that process over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. yeah. But you got it done. <laughs> it got done. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things I want to talk about is this idea of unlearning some of the things that we've been taught about money and um, specifically around your 401k. So again, I want to caveat it with this is not financial advice for anybody out there, but it's it, the goal of having this conversation is so that people can start thinking about things differently and maybe asking different questions. So I don't know what to ask other than what is your thought on a 401k? It's it's a really hot topic because I was on a show a couple of days ago and I'm telling you the people they were they were both your traditional financial planners and they were hot as they were they did not agree with me. And and that's great. I mean, you can agree or or disagree. I'm just telling people what I've noticed, you know, and what I noticed is wealthy people tend to look at their money as the easiest word is utilization. Their money is being used. When, when I was guilty of this, I had a rental. My money at a glance is being used, but no, it's, it really isn't. I had a small down payment and uh, there was a huge chunk that was in um, appreciation that was just sitting and I was just gonna, uh, and that, <clears throat> you know, is called accumulation. I was like, well, we'll just keep accumulating over here in this pile. And then when the, in 30 years, we'll hope that this pile will be big enough to, you know, give me this egg, this golden egg in my retirement. And that I think is what uh, is a 401k is uh, it's money that you're, you're putting aside, you're investing, my problems with it, and probably the wealthy people would say the same, is if you ask people what they're invested in with their 401k, they won't be able to tell you largely um, what they're invested in. They may not even be able to, I'm surprised at the people I do talk to, that they can't even, they don't even, they're not able to tell you what their 401k has done for them in the past, you know, five years, 10 years. And certainly won't be able to tell me what kind of fees they're having to pay out of their 401k. So 
those, and, and then the largest thing for me and for a lot of people is what, what, how much money do you actually have? So you have a hundred thousand in your 401k, but when you go to get that in 10 or 20 years, what will the tax rates be and how will that affect you? So you don't, no wealthy person is going to be like, well, I think I've got about a hundred, but yeah, I'm not sure what the taxes and just would not happen because wealthy people are very on top of how much their money, what their money's doing for them and what kind of returns they're getting. But they're also planning ahead to um, mitigate some of their taxes um, because taxes, inflation, those are the largest eroders of wealth that that are out there. And so I'm not saying to go in and cash in your 401k if you have one, but certainly I think what I'm trying to tell people is just examine how much money you have in that 401k and maybe go out and, and look at some of these alternative investments with, with your other money till, till you're kind of split, maybe 50-50 or, you know, the, the wealthy people I see mostly are 90% invested in alternative. Um, they're either invested in businesses, they're invested in syndicated real estate, um, things like that for the major cash flowing assets is where the majority of their money is. And then maybe five to 10% is in the stock market. Um, but you also have the benefit of taking the 401k now. If it's an old 401k that you, you know, haven't worked at that job, you can change it to a self-directed IRA. It's not my favorite option on the planet, but it's still way, 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 way better because I have a person that was in this deal I'm my first deal I'm talking to you about and he's doubled his money in three years and he certainly he still couldn't get over that when I you know broke it all down for him he's like I mean it's been sitting basically making three four percent a year and um, he's been able to double it for three years so he'll just he'll roll it over into the next deal and, and do the same thing over and over again. Yeah, there's a couple of things I want to pull out from that is one is the idea of taxes, right? And I'm a big proponent of you don't know what tax rates are going to be in the future. So if you have the opportunity to pay tax now or pay tax later in, in some kind of shielded account like a 401k or an IRA where they force you to distribute it to take the taxes out of it, then you should go ahead and pay the taxes now. Now, 1031 exchanges where you can punt it down the line and then set it up in a trust where ultimately you could hand it down infinite and no taxes, like that's a different conversation. But this idea of a 401k, because you're going to be wealthier tomorrow than you are today and you want to pay less taxes, or you're going to be less wealthy tomorrow than you are today and you'll pay less taxes, is an idea that came out in the 70s when tax rates were like 70% right? We've gone through two major tax reforms since then, the Reagan tax forms in the 80s, and then the recent jobs acts. Taxes right now are the lowest they have been in the United States history since the introduction of the tax rate. And people yeah. don't realize how low they are, I think. Um, and then what I think you're really talking about, and I would love your thoughts on this, is this idea of control. Because what you do when you put it in a 401k is you don't have control over it until you are 59 and a half when you can take it out penalty free or start having to pay taxes on it. And so the idea of control and that you are your greatest asset when it comes to your wealth, I think is the biggest reason why I start questioning whether you should put things in vehicles where you can't touch it for another couple of decades sometimes. Mm -hmm. 
A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think people, I deal with some pe people, I really try to reach out to people that haven't heard of this type of investing. And a lot of people, you know, they get stuck in the paralysis of analysis and they, they don't pull the trigger. Um, but really, it isn't as complicated as you make it to be. I, I was happened to be talking to a professor of um, entrepreneurship uh, at a university over Thanksgiving. And I said, she gets to look at, you know, all these people that have ideas for businesses and, you know, they decide which one. I'm like, which, how do you know or what do you look at first to see if one of these is going to succeed? And this isn't real estate. These are businesses. And she says, the number one thing I would look at is the team. Do they have experience in this sector? What is their track record? And I, I found that very interesting because that would be my first um, thing to tell an investor is if you're going to invest with them, do, do the research on the, on the team involved and see what they've done in the past, the most recent past. And, and, and do they have experience doing what they're doing? Are they... If they are said they're doing monthly distributions, can you call a past investor and see if, yes, they, they in fact do that? It's really not as hard as people think it is. And by giving that power away to financial planners that really don't understand, they, they don't have a magic ball, um, the financial planners. I think we all saw that in the crash and, you know, where my mom lost almost half of, of what she had. Uh, people need to be able to depend on themselves. The 401k is a pretty new, you know, creation. And um, yeah, I, I, those would be my two cents. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'll kind of end this conversation with like, if it's between 401k and you going on a vacation and spending it at, on a Gucci belt or whatever, like 401k, put it in there, right? We're not saying don't put any money in 401k. We're saying that if you have the option to, you know, your discipline, you know, you can save, you know, you can create, and you've got ideas that you think you can make happen with your capital, then it's better suited in your hands than into some vehicle that may or may not offer you a tax benefit because we can't predict what the tax code's going to look like 30 years from now. So um, I don't know any, any kind of closing comments on that. No, I, I agree 100%. I, I think that people, it's just a different time in the world. And you have to recognize that um, investing in things that have tangible assets. I, again, I was on that show where people were a little skeptical. And they said, well, what, what if you lose all their money? I said, can, can you explain to me how I would lose all, all of the money in this? Um, you know, we, we've researched the market, which is it's very great. Uh, there's a there's a huge shortage of housing. It's going to take a decade for them to catch up to the housing where where it is right now. Um, it, people, you know, there's a want for for this product. Uh, people need housing, so um, I try to think of a way you could lose all the money. You know, uh, even if it was completely vacant, the property still has its replacement cost value. That, that could be sold. And so I would just say, you know, start looking into it, have an open mind. Um, but having a cash flowing asset with, with tax benefits gets you much faster. I mean, uh, to a place you, you can't even imagine you'd be. Yep. 
That's right. Well, I want to switch us now to our last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? I say the same one because I haven't read one that's surpassed it. And it is uh, that Garrett Gunderson killing sacred cows. And I tell it, you know, because that book is really a my, about mindset. And if you don't have that mindset change about money, it, it's very hard to change your position in your life. And uh, that book, it, I think, is fantastic about talking about everything that we've, we've talked about today. I have not read that, but I've read uh, uh, his disciples, I guess, have written similar books, and they're very good as well. But I've got to put that on, on the reading list. Um, mm -hmm. Our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the things and the habits that you have in your life. What are, what are the things that you do every day? I mean, I think the, the habits I have are just that I think I keep, I have, I'm an optimistic person. I, and I think that a time management in uh, when you're an entrepreneur and being an insurance agency, that, that's different actually than doing what I do now because I have to create a lot of content, you know, go on podcasts and stuff like that. So I find it, you know, if you can look at, I have an old fashioned calendar where I have each hour pretty much accounted for and, and that time blocking has been huge for me to, you know, get to things I might not otherwise get to. That's right. If, I, if I would, they weren't written in there. And tell anybody that's looking to change, write down the three things that you need to accomplish every single day and just do that yeah. for a couple of weeks, maybe a month, and you'll you'll see a dramatic increase in your productivity in life. Mm -hmm. Our third one is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? My best piece of advice, when I worked for a W-2 is, is where I'm getting at, and I'd done that for eight years and got to the point where I got a 2% raise and that was the best that they said was out there for me. And I was pretty devastated because I went home and figured out, you know, what that meant for the rest of my life. And I talked to my dad and he said, well, you know, you know, you know, this is laid out for you, what you're going to get if you stay there. Or, you know, you can take the other path and where, you know, basically you're going to depend on yourself and, and what you can create. And it's really up to you to make that decision, but you need to make it. And that was, you know, what had changed my trajectory in my life. Yeah. Sometimes fathers have a, a way to deliver advice that is much needed for the moment, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Our fourth one is what is the thing that you're most proud of in your life? My, I think, I think my family for, to me is, is everything. I became a mom a bit later in life. I have a seven-year-old and he's just a joy in my life. And, but I'm also proud that, you know, I'm really close to my sister and we weren't so much growing up. And, um, and then, you know, my mom, my dad has since passed away, but I, I think having a strong family unit, you know, that's something I'm, I'm pretty proud of. Yeah. We were talking about your grandfather and your father before this, and you yeah. got some pretty interesting stuff there that I won't tell here. And I'll just say, you got to talk to Stephanie to, to hear the full story <laughs> there. But our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh boy. That's a tough one. That's a t I've been thinking of that since you, you told me before 
we we came on here and I know it sounds uh, sounds cheesy but it is my dad it's he passed away 16 years ago so he never got to see um any of this this real estate syndication never got to see my son I think he would have absolutely just loved this and been so awesome at it but yeah I I that's the one that comes to mind I mean there's certainly I've always kind of loved old presidents too so I mean I think I think Ronald Reagan would be there somewhere too but um yeah yeah those, those I um, are the ones that come to mind judging how this started where you said that your father owned a Dairy Queen and probably made more than one blizzard in his life that might be yeah. one that I would want to crash in on and just enjoy some blizzards too <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, well, Stephanie, this is fantastic. If our listeners wanted to learn more about you and, and reach out, where was the best place we could direct them? Oh, yeah, just to my website, which is www.airbeewealth.com. And uh, I have a, a new report up there about the five reasons that passive investing might be for you. But I have lots of lots of content on there to, to look around and um yeah, that's Perfect. a great place to start. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we'll put those in the show notes and thank you so much for being a guest and we look forward to having you on sometime soon. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.